The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Today we continue to consider the Ten Commandments, God's commandments through Moses on Mount Sinai, which are for all time. They've not been withdrawn. They've they've not been uh, abrogated or in any way annulled. They are his commandments for us. We come to the seventh commandment, but before I read that in Exodus 20, the very short statement of it, I'm going to read a foundational text in Genesis 2 that stands in every way behind the commandment and, in fact, establishes the institution that the commandment is protecting, God's establishment of marriage, Genesis 2, beginning at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that a man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and birds of the heavens and beasts of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. This is the word of God. I ask you to picture an imaginary scene in your mind, a green English valley in days of long ago, a beautiful landscape with a river running through the valley, and in the center of the picture there's a castle, 50 feet high, walls of stone three feet thick, turrets with banners flying. The castle is the center of a village, a scene of enterprise where farms relate to the castle and Agriculture and business goes on around that manor place where some wealth flows and an economy depends on what's happening there in the castle. The castle is a strong place, well-built, surrounded with a moat. It has a typical single main entrance with a drawbridge of heavy oak timbers framed with iron. 
a place that really is a sanctuary. A whole economy revolves around it, but in it is a sanctuary that withstands attack from outside and its inhabitants could survive a lengthy siege by a strong army. But in days of old or today, there's a way that castle might fall quickly to an attacker. And it would be a simple thing if in the middle of the night, the lord of the manor or the lady, for some bizarre reason, who knows why, would go down and open the drawbridge to allow an invader to come in. Because you see, if there's a breach of trust from the inside, no physical structure can keep an enemy out. And if that were to happen, that the enemy came in by the drawbridge and then, of course, admitted others like himself, you would soon see a scene where the castle would be a smoldering ruin, the banners wouldn't be flying anymore, the farms would be laid waste, and the whole scene would be very different because of broken trust from within. I think you can grasp that my imaginary scene is an exact illustration of how the marriage sanctuary can be violated by what the Scripture calls adultery. It's interesting that the seventh commandment does not define what it prohibits. It doesn't say what adultery is. It assumes we have some knowledge of marriage. But it is the violation of trust within a marriage, the violation of God's sacred space in which a man and wife dwell walled off from outside interference, where they live in a relationship that is a safe haven and it's protected simply by vows of trust and covenant faithfulness. A trespasser can disrupt that union only if one of those castle dwellers lowers the drawbridge in some way. I won't take time to begin to illustrate to you the ways in which God's seventh commandment is literally sneered at in America every day and every hour. How our entertainment thrives on sneering at it. Just as I mentioned last week that without murder and violence of killing, what would we base movies on? What would mystery novels be written about? Here too, I say to you, think about our movies, our films, our TV shows, and please come and tell me later of a show you know that promotes respect for marriage. As you well know, nearly everything does exactly the opposite. I'm an old, old person now. I have to acknowledge that. But I can remember the time in American life when the foundations were shaken. It was the 1960s and its sexual revolution that completely changed so much. And I realize that there are 40-year-old adults who don't know this because they've never known an America in which the norms of Judeo-Christian respect for marriage were once, at least, nominally respected. No longer. Television producers consider marriage a joke. Thousands of individual people consider it a joke. They will tell you as they live without the benefits of marriage with a woman or a man, they will say, 
Oh, what are you talking about? I don't need that puritanical morality. I don't need a piece of paper called a wedding license to legitimize my relationships. And yet these same people often carry inward chains of guilt and shame that literally cripple their lives in their ever-changeable lineup of sexual partners. The seventh commandment says briefly, you shall not commit adultery. It is not the only thing that the Bible says about sexual morality, but it is absolutely the trunk of the tree. Everything else about sexuality somehow branches off from this, whether we're talking about polygamy or lust or fornication or homosexuality or divorce. It all comes from this central tree. Marriage is God's protected place for male and female sexuality to happen. One man and one woman enjoying intimacy and fulfillment within the bond of marriage. And when sexuality is exercised outside of that, heartache and negative consequences inevitably will result. Now, in the first place today, we want to consider, and this will be a longer point, the second one's very short, the sacred space at the heart of marriage. The sacred space at the heart of marriage. You shall not commit adultery. If you wanted to flip it around, of course, it's a negative statement. It's a prohibition. Let's flip it around and say, you shall commit marriage. That's the opposite of adultery. Marriage in which a husband and wife dwell in trust and respect. And so, in order to have the commandment mean anything in Exodus 20, we've got to know where the Bible is coming from, and it's coming from Genesis 2. You cannot study the first three chapters of the Bible long enough or in enough detail. So many things are laid down in Genesis 1 to 3 that are looked back upon by subsequent teaching and revelation in the Word of God. And here's the foundation that the commandment comes to protect. Genesis 2.18 says there's a problem in the wonderful creation. As the man enjoyed it, he looked about it, he became a scientist naming things, studying the creation, reveling in what God was doing, but aware as he looked about in the creation that there was something good for all the animals and all the birds that was not good for him. He was alone. He had no helper suited to him. Now, I'm not going to go into from a scientific aspect, verse 21 and following, as the Lord God creates the woman from the rib of a man. I've heard people literally laugh at that and say, what a silly fable that is. No, that's an expression of divine truth, of what God did, what it looked like, how exactly it would be understood scientifically is another matter, but it's truth. God created the woman from the man for the man and brought her to Adam. And then in verse 24, it told us here, here's a helper suited for you. Now the two shall forsake all others and be united to one another as one flesh. Those two words, one flesh, are something that I suppose if you were juvenile in mind, you could giggle at or something. Oh, that must mean sex. Yes, it means that. 
but it certainly means more than just the union of bodies. One flesh means delving into a rich, satisfying, all-delightful satisfaction of your being mentally, spiritually, physically. Investing in another person who has to be different from you to begin with in order to bring something to the relationship that you need. She will be different from you in physical nature, of course, in emotions, of course, and you different from her, and you will bring to that relationship something called companionship, something God obviously prizes because he wanted to give the gift of it to Adam. You know, we could spend time here taking apart the, the details, and I'm, I'm dealing more in a broad sweep with this passage, but I love verse 23, and I've read many different commentators on 23, and many of them try to make the point that if you're just reading the text, you don't pick up the excitement of Genesis 2.23. The woman is presented to the man. Now, this is a big moment. This is a moment that we don't have a word for. Uh, One word might be eureka. One word might be wow. I'm not sure there is a word. For Adam seeing this beautiful creature who in one sense he must have known something like her had to exist, but he'd never seen her before. And now he sees her and says, Lord, I've been profoundly lonely Now, all of a sudden, I understand why I was lonely and why I won't need to be anymore. I really believe that married companionship is God's gift to, in a sense, put back into our lives many different times, hour by hour, week by week. We won't experience it continuously, but married people should experience it More than once, many, many times, this sense of, wow, what has God given me? Something great here. I had fellowship with God before this, Adam could have said, but now I have fellowship on earth with a soulmate, someone who is like me and yet unlike me. And our marriages ought to be full of these moments in which we would be able to say, you know what, I've got to tell you, I'm so delighted. I'm looking all over this congregation, and I'm seeing like half a dozen couples just married this year. I rejoice that you're here. I rejoice to be able to speak these truths to you, newly married couples, as well as 50 anniversaries plus. But there should be these moments, not just once, not just on the honeymoon, moments when we say, thank you, Lord, for this person. I have to admit it in her presence. Obviously, this sermon's been on my mind. You know, you're dwelling on the sermon at different times. My wife walked through the room yesterday. We didn't say anything. There wasn't a reason for us to say anything. I don't even know where she was going. She was crossing the room, maybe going to start dinner or something. And she just walked past me, and I looked up. I didn't tell you, dear. I said, wow. Thank you, Lord. I'm not saying this to be emotional. I said, thank you for 44 years of companionship. Oh, guess what? We're not always nice to each other. We actually do disagree about some things. But wow, 
what God has given me. And marriage should be about those kind of moments, reoccurring again and again. That's what a covenant union is. Two people, a man and a woman, joined in fidelity, in trust, in vows that they solemnly state. I try to say to young couples when they're standing down here and we're, we're ready to do the vows, and I tell them at the rehearsal, now, you know, I want you to rehearse this so that tomorrow you're solemn about it and you're not giggling because the promise you're making is the most important promise you'll make in your whole life to another individual. Later on, the Bible says this belonging to somebody, this exclusive partnership is about knowing another person. Maybe you think the Bible's embarrassed to use the the, the term sexual intercourse, and so you think when Abraham went into his tent at night with Sarah, the Bible says he knew his wife because it doesn't know how to say they had sex. No, there's nothing embarrassed about the Bible. It's using the word, he knew his wife. Because it's pointing you to something going on there that's not simply a physical act. It's all about mind and spirit. It's about an absolute exposure of yourself to another person in which you discover delights and completeness and peace and joy that you cannot find all by yourself. That at least is God's design. And when in verse 25 of Genesis 2, the Scripture says they were naked and unashamed. Young people, that's not a time to giggle. It's not just talking about a lack of wardrobe. It's talking about artificial barriers dropping in a no-holds-barred giving of yourself to another person. Something you can only do, the Bible says, within the trust and the bonds of marriage. In a monogamous relationship, mono means one. Giving of yourself to one. Not a polygamous relationship, which is a giving of yourself to many. One, if you share yourself this way recklessly with many people, you can't expect the height of reward that God has planned. So this gives us, by reading Genesis 2, first of all, some idea of what God is prohibiting when he says you shall not commit adultery. What he's simply saying is, look, here's the relationship. It's one-on-one. There's a sanctuary around it. Don't go outside of that relationship. The Bible has another word, fornication, for sex before marriage, but it's just a branch, if you will, of adultery. The idea of violating the relationship with the vows surrounding it. And the Scripture is saying, if you want to enjoy sexual intimacy and the delights that God has created and without the vows, what you're looking for is a fraud. It's a counterfeit of what God has made. You might as well go down and let the drawbridge down in the middle of the night and say to the barbarian, come on in and bring all your friends and ruin the sanctity of my private dwelling because you share your body indiscriminately. We call that promiscuity if you want a big word. Share your body indiscriminately in this world and you're inviting one barbarian after another into your sanctuary who has no concern or respect for you.
God designed sexuality to be within the sanctuary of marriage. Now, I go to a second point that I'm, it might seem like, where's this coming from? But I think you'll see how it's very much related. And it's just a short point. If monogamy, if, if sexual union and intimacy within marriage is God's goal, then people come and ask, well, why then, pastor, do we read the Bible and read so many examples of polygamy? Why is there all this polygamy in the Bible? Abraham, Jacob, David, Solomon, godly patriarchs, they're called. People we're supposed to respect, and yet more than one wife, in some cases women, not their wives, siring children, and so on. And it doesn't seem to me, pastor, as if these men are always condemned for what they did. It doesn't seem as if God brought any lightning down on their heads for this sin. So are we supposed to have, and of course there are those who who say, oh, the Bible teaches polygamy. Nonsense. Read the Bible as it's to be understood. Read the Bible in terms of the long view of history and what will it show you? Every incidence of polygamy you can see, if you follow the trail long enough, brings woe and despair and division and ruin to the house in which it occurred every instance I can think of. Yes, not always immediately, and God doesn't always thunder about it right when it happens. But go and trace out some of those examples. Abraham fathering Ishmael by Hagar, something that his wife came and proposed of all things, and he should have been strong enough to say, no, that's not God's way. Well, what about Ishmael? Was there a punishment on the house of Abraham? Have you watched the news the last week? Do you know who came from Ishmael? The entire Arab world that opposes the Jews today in the 21st century. David sinned with Bathsheba. Now he repented before God and he was forgiven, but nevertheless, the divisions that came into his family made a huge clash afterwards and all kinds of problems for his throne. Solomon, wisest man who ever lived, except in one area, his harem, unbelievable. Hundreds of women. This supposedly wise man called wives or mistresses or something. What happened to the kingdom after Solomon? All the sons and children of those wives fought each other and the kingdom dissolved. So don't tell me polygamy is something God is indifferent about or that he praises or that he approves. The consequences of adultery are real and very far-reaching even for generations to come. God intended marriage to be a sacred space with a room for two. Thirdly then, I would say to you that here is a commandment in the seventh commandment that proves to us to be a law that liberates what it locks up. What am I saying? A law that liberates what it locks up. You see, it seems to be negative. It seems to be a prohibition. You say, oh, God doesn't like sex, so he doesn't let us do it very much. You know, he made it to be a powerful urge in us, but, but then he said, no. And he just frustrates our freedom and doesn't want us to enjoy anything. Well, my friends, if God doesn't think the joy of sex was created by himself or is legitimate in the right setting, then we better take a little book called The Song of Solomon out of the Bible. 
I'm a grown man. But if I were to read to you as a congregation some of the passages of the Song of Solomon, I don't blush very much, I don't think, but I would blush. A celebration of erotic love between a husband and wife is a book in the Bible. God said, I want you to know, I created this incredible delight for the bridegroom and his bride. Otherwise, that book doesn't belong in the Word of God. God isn't restricting sexuality to be within marriage because he's a killjoy. He does it for the same reason that a locomotive needs steel tracks to run upon. Let's say you're going to take the Amtrak from Philadelphia. I don't know if you can get it in Lancaster or what, but wherever you get Amtrak and you want to go to Cincinnati. And you get on, you buy your ticket, and and they say, hey, we're going through Pittsburgh, but hey, make an announcement. Folks, there's a real problem with the tracks beyond Pittsburgh, so uh, this train's going to Cincinnati all right, but after Pittsburgh, we're going to have to leave the rails and go cross-country. Would you stay on the train? I know you're not going to hear that, of course, but you say, wait a minute, that can't happen. Trains need tracks. The minute they're off the tracks, they're ruined. Well, that's exactly what God is saying. This powerful gift, the gift of your sexuality needs tracks. And the tracks are called marriage. Go off the tracks and you're going to be harmed in one way or another. My friend Phil Riken, in writing about this, has a, a delightful image in which he says human sexuality should be compared to superglue. Remember when superglue first came along? Some of you can. There's a whole family of adhesives that are like superglue. They don't all have that name, but it, it really is glue that is super. And if you've ever fooled around with it, you know. You know, if you want to glue th- two things together, super glue is pretty good. But you want to make sure of, you know, what the two edges are that you want to join, and you get a very precise bead of it on there. Join them, watch your fingers, preferably wear gloves, and put the two pieces together, and you will have a wonderful bond. But you cannot decide to use super glue the way first graders used, you know, Elmer's white glue in, in first grade. Just sort of squirt it out, and don't worry if uh, big blobs are all over your hand, because if big blobs are on your hand, your fingers will be like this. For weeks, super glue really sticks, and it really causes problems wherever it goes, if it goes where it shouldn't be. Well, Dr. Riken was saying, spill the gift of sexuality carelessly, and that's what you're going to inherit. We shouldn't talk about breaking the Ten Commandments. What we should be talking about is how God's gift and God's law, His good gift, will break us in one way or another, if we abuse it. I want to talk to young people. Some of you are so young here, children are here who don't understand everything I'm talking about. That's okay. And parents, if you're somehow offended at a frank subject, I don't, be, I don't even beg your pardon because they need to hear what I'm saying after all the garbage that their minds are washed in every day of the week. Young people, I want to say to you that I can guarantee that what I'm about to say, you will either learn the easy way or the hard way. 
The easy way is obeying God and believing that he knows what he says and it's for your good. The hard way is saying, eh, I'll just obey this urge called sex. And you'll also learn the lesson, but you'll learn it with much pain. Here's the lesson. There is no physical expression of true love that can long exist or survive outside secure bonds of a marriage commitment. Oh, pastor, you're just a pastor. You have to say that. No, I'm actually, in this observation, a sociologist. I read the newspaper. I read human lives. They parade through my office. I see them, and I hear what's going on. And I've never heard of a long-term expression outside of marriage of sexuality that was good for the individual. Let me, let me ask you this. Young people, you understand this. Your computer that you use has a password. I think you know that you don't give the password away. My wife and I, I think, were hacked last week. We're still trying to figure it out, what went on. Somebody got in to our computer. We didn't want them in there. You don't give out your password. Well, the expression of your body in sexuality is giving your password. You might as well go to school and and everybody you meet, every new kid at school you've never seen before, you don't know anything about, you say, hey, would you like my computer password? Here it is. I've written it down. Hey, would you like it? Here, 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 here. Everybody, take my password. I think if you're seven years old, you know that's dumb. You don't want to do that. But casual sex does exactly that. It hands away the key, the master key to who you are, what you are, everything about you that God values and says, here, anybody who wants it, it's yours. It gives away the sanctuary. You know, I'm hip enough at 64. I would never try to make you believe I'm really hip, but I'm hip enough to know what hooking up is. Maybe some of you older adults haven't heard about hooking up. Hooking up goes on on every college campus and I suppose many high schools. As a young man and a young woman who don't have a relationship, who have no intention of having a relationship, no desire to have a relationship, decide to have sex. It's the ultimate pleasure grab between two bodies, the ultimate form of manipulation, the ultimate way of saying, I don't care who you are as a person, You're an attractive body. That's all that matters to me. You're an object. I'll use you as an object and throw you away. Young people, what I'm talking about is the most important thing in your life. I can't guarantee every one of you that God has a married partner waiting for you. Young ladies, I can't tell you that Sir Galahad is out there going to ride in on a white horse. But if you will wait, if you will fight the battles through temptation, if you will pray and consecrate your life to the Lord and say, Lord, if you have someone for me to be this partner that Adam found and said, wow, help me to be patient and to find that person. Jesus internalized the seventh commandment by telling us that a man could even commit adultery in his heart by looking at a woman the wrong way. 
They laughed at Jimmy Carter when he ran as a Christian running for president, and he gave an interview and said, I'm sure I have committed adultery in my heart because I've lusted after women. What's well, true? I'm sure it is true. The, the whole public laughed. They said, this dumb guy, what a terrible thing to say that he wants to be president. He, he wasn't president yet. I think he was still running at that point. And they said, what a joke. Well, Jimmy Carter was just saying and what Jesus said that our sin is so extensive that it goes all the way through all of us and we can do it with our minds as well as our bodies. We're all adulterers in some fashion. There certainly isn't a man in this room who hasn't lusted after a woman. Maybe this morning. We're all adulterers in our hearts. But Scripture says if we will confess our sin, God through Christ is faithful and just to forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I once spoke to a husband, and don't try to think who this is. You won't think. A husband whose wife had committed adultery, had an affair. The affair went on several years. The husband didn't know. And he didn't know for several years afterward. She hid that, held it with shame, Finally, it was eating at her so much. And these are both Christians, Christian wife, Christian husband. She finally came to her husband, and she felt almost suicidal. But she just said, I can't contain it anymore. I have to tell my husband. And she told him, I had an affair. It's over. It's been over. But I didn't tell you, and I'm deeply ashamed. That husband's name is not Hosea. (laughs) You probably know about Hosea from the Old Testament and his wife of adultery. But as a Christian man, what impressed me in talking to him was he didn't say, oh, I struggled and struggled to see if I could, you know, I knew the Bible would allow me to divorce her because she did that. He never even brought that up. The divorce word didn't even come up. He just said it was hard to forgive her but I never thought about doing anything else because he knew how much he'd been forgiven and how Christ had died to consecrate him. Today I say to any of you who are ashamed of your past or maybe your present unfaithfulness in some way, your sexual life is off the tracks. Boy, the computer sure makes that easy these days. Maybe you're humbled and broken in the ashes of some recent sexual sin. Can I commend to you, please, the cleansing power of the cross of Jesus Christ? I'm going to soon treat the text in which Paul speaks about those who are sexually immoral and comes to say to his Christian brethren, and such were some of you but you're not anymore because they're cleansed. Christ died to forgive the sins of temptation, adultery, pornography, fornication, all this down-to-earth stuff that we live with. God's wonderful grace stands ready to wipe your slate clean.
and to do so not so you can just turn around and go out and say, okay, I'm cleansed now, I'll go do it again. No. So you can walk in newness of life, a clean life, a life that strives for God's delight in the center of your being. Our Father, there's practical stuff here. It pertains to 10-year-old boys at their computer. It pertains to 35-year-old and 79-year-old husbands. It pertains to single folks who struggle and struggle how to live a chaste life. Lord, this is a hard one, and we can't do it without your renewing grace and your forgiving power. Thank you that they're available. Help us to avail ourselves of it. Give us marriages that are satisfying, delightful, and well-guarded against the invader. For Jesus' sake, amen.